0: Welcome to ArchNet Sessions, episode 27. This week, we'll be discussing the tragic earthquake that struck Nepal on the weekend. We reached out to ArchNet member Rajan Karmacharya, who moved back home to Kathmandu about six months ago after finishing architecture studies in the US. Rajan discusses the dire situation the area is facing at the moment and offers some insight into the country's immediate needs and longer-term needs, including ways architects can help. Before we get started, I want to mention that Alucabond is back this week as our sponsor. I have Tom Seitz, Head of Sales, on the phone with me.
1: Bond is actually an aluminum composite material and it consists of uh, two skins of o aluminum bonded to a polyethylene um, core. And we also have a fire resistant core which adds to this feature. And uh, the LucaBond comes in three, four, and six-millimeter thicknesses, 40, 50, and 62-inch widths. And uh, LucaBond Plus, which is the fire-resistant one, comes in four-millimeter thickness and 40, 50, and 62-inch widths.
0: What are some projects that feature Leukabond products?
1: Oh, wow. They are vast. There are many types of of projects utilizing LucaBond ranging from restaurants like Fridays, RVs, Wendy's. Automotive dealerships like Audi, Acura, Chevrolet, Ford, Jaguar, Porsche, Subaru, Volvo, airports all over the country and world. But the the ones that people might recognize are in Minneapolis, St. Paul, San Francisco, LAX, uh, Pitt, DFW, Las Vegas, even in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hospitals throughout the country and world, Rush University Hospital, Children's Hospital in Dayton. Cleveland Clinic, universities throughout the world. Also, uh, one of the recent ones was the Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston, Mass, The now Seoul University in Seoul, South Korea, Business Management School in Moscow, Russia. And uh, one of the more iconic projects was Spaceship Earth at EPCOT, and that was one of the first ones done in
0: 1981. Oh, wow. So when did a Leukabon get started?
1: Lucabond uh, got started back, uh, well, kind of officially in the late 60s. But the real story of Lucabond getting started was, was kind of unique in the fact that it was a mistake, of course, which most products are. But back in the early 60s, Western Electric, BASF, and Swiss Aluminum were looking for a method to bond aluminum to polyethylene in an effort for the communications industry to lower their costs from copper to aluminum wire. And after they got the patent for that process to adhere the polyethylene to the aluminum material, and they got that patent, once they realized, or Western Electric realized, that the future of communications was going to be wireless, they decided to get out of their patent with it. And uh, BASF uh, had no use for it. But I. Swiss decided to take it back to Switzerland. And that's when they developed the first wide, thin, lightweight, sheet of a composite material for construction purposes. And the other ironic part of it was, this was in 1965 when they gave up the patent, and in 1973, the first cell phone became available.
0: Wow, so that was very forward-thinking.
1: Yeah, it was very interesting in that aspect, uh, as far as what happens when people develop, certain things; they go in one direction. And when I saw that it was a way to change the, uh, the exterior facade business for the last 40 some odd years.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing a little information about Alucabond with us, Tom. My pleasure. For more information about Alucabond, go to alucabondusa.com. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. How is everybody?
2: Pretty good. Outstanding. Good. I just came back from a very long road trip, actually, from Nashville, Tennessee to Denver, Colorado. So I am happy to be back in California and having appreciated a part of this country that I have lived in for my entire life, but never seen the majority of. So I'm full of American cliches at this time.
0: (laughs) 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 Any highlights that you want to share?
2: Two highlights in particular. I... For whatever reason, somewhat serendipitously, our trip was kind of benchmarked by visits to naturally occurring hot springs and mineral baths in Hot Springs, Arkansas, the birthplace and hometown of Bill Clinton, and a other mountain hot spring in Valley, I believe the high valley of um, Colorado outside of Moffat, Colorado, which is a town of around a hundred people in southern Colorado. So we got these pretty miraculous natural phenomenons of these hot springs that are either thousands or like hundreds of thousands of years old of just this miraculous feeling of I am now soaking in a tub of water from who knows where and coming from the bottom of the earth and just enjoying the natural splendor around me. So that was, those were two definite highlights throughout the entire trip. But otherwise, it's just a classic road trip. It was a great time. How about you guys? Ken, what have you been up to?
3: Had an interesting thing happen last week with uh, my friends, the butchers. Oh yeah, they were all set to sign their lease, and the owner of the property backed out the day of the signing.
4: Oh,
2: no. unbelievable. <laughs> tragic, unbelievable! Tragic, tragic. Why? <laughs> what? What happened? They don't know. Well,
3: apparently they found out. Unfortunately, they found out a little bit too late. Of course, is that the the owners were not probably dealing with them honestly and weren't, weren't honest brokers and had through. Third party sources have been kind of shady to deal with in other aspects of their business. So they just said, you know what? We're not going to negotiate with you anymore. We're just going to move to another property. We're just going to find somebody else. So tomorrow I go and take a look at a site for them tomorrow, and hopefully this will turn out pretty well for them. It's next to a, I think it's a lead silver restaurant. I think one of the first lead silver restaurants in the country, in Minneapolis. So the owner of that property has a space next door. So it looks like it'll work out pretty well for them and uh, works out pretty well for me because I got another shot at uh, design. So,
4: yeah. <laughs> and you think this is a better space?
3: From all intents and purposes, um, my initial drive-by and kind of peering into the window, it looks like a much better space. Good. Yeah, we can use some of the things that we, we developed on the on the previous site, but obviously, you know, it being a different space, it still requires
0: the design. Design.
3: So that's happening, you know. And uh, I got hurt again in jujitsu
0: yesterday. So that's fun. Oh no! What part of the body this time? I think I
3: pulled an abdominal muscle. Either that, or my like uh, I got a sucking Ow. chest wound, or some kind of.
4: Uh, oh my a god!
3: Broken rib <laughs> or something? I have no
4: idea. alien. No. An alien. <laughs>
3: No, but it's it's fun because I've been watching a lot of videos on YouTube from the Gracie Academy and I found out some interesting things that I didn't know uh, until this weekend that Oscar Niemeyer was a student of Helio Gracie.
4: Wow, really?
3: Yeah, he was a jujitsu practitioner himself. So. And it's the only way I can kind of catch up in class is to watch videos, just to learn some basic stuff because everybody else is, has, a, has some library of knowledge. And, and when I keep going to class and I'm like, I have no idea what to do in this position. Now I can say I have some semblance of an idea what to do in this position. <laughs> I stop getting my ass kicked. How often do you go? I, I go three days a week. Nice. Yeah, and the day I land, I come back on from the uh, convention on a Sunday, and there's a uh, the the founder of our school is going to be in town that weekend. So that Sunday, I get to go to a four hour jujitsu training session.
0: So
4: that'll oh my. be
0: yeah, four hours on a Sunday. That'll <laughs> be fun. Get all that AIA convention frustration out of your system. Oh yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a detox. It'll be like a <laughs> detox. You'll need it. Yeah. So I got all that
3: stuff going on, and you know the Avengers movie's coming out.
4: So oh yeah, still. I'm excited
3: about it actually. So who should I ask? Paul, Donna. What have you guys been up to?
0: Paul, what have you what have you been up to? I took my kids, who are uh, going on six, going on nine, to uh, the Hollyhock House here in L.A. The Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh wow. Yeah, it was actually they loved it surprisingly. They thought it was pretty cool and. It was, uh, the last time I had been was a long time ago, like 20 years ago. I remember, uh, I was a kid, I was a teenager and it is looking really, really nice. There's very few parts of the house that are actually accessible due to a access issue. They can't make accessible any parts of the house that are not universally uh accessible. So that limits it to basically the entry and the living room, the library, Uh, That's about it. But it was really nicely maintained. And I wasn't even aware, actually, of the relationship of that project to Rudolf Schindler and uh, Richard Neutra. All three of those architects were involved on this property, which makes it a pretty... Even that much more historically relevant project in Los Angeles.
4: I had no idea that they were all three involved. In what capacity? What were they well, doing? Well,
0: Schindler was actually working for Wright at the time, but he was working in the Chicago office. And Wright took him to Los Angeles specifically to work on the Hollyhock House. And Schindler came out here and loved it and didn't want to leave. So he stayed here and then developed quite a career here in in Los Angeles on his own.
2: Hmm. It's an amazing house. Yeah.
4: So my son always jokes with me that architecture is so boring. Did your kids think that the architecture was boring or did they enjoy it?
0: Well, if they thought it was boring, they did a pretty good job tricking me. I think they really liked it because, you know, the Hollyhock house has this really beautiful textile block.
4: Yeah. Not yeah. structure,
0: but element. And... You know, they're both. My kids are really into building with Legos and blocks, and I, okay. you know, I think they related to that aspect of the project. And I mean, it, it was so beautifully maintained that I think even at that age, they could really appreciate the beauty of the house. And you know, little things like the concrete, the original concrete door with the uh, the Frank Lloyd Wright designed metal keyhole hider, things like mm-hmm. that, they they really paid attention to and nice and responded to. They also love that it's, you know, it's within Hollyhock or Barnstall Park and there was lots of fun stuff going on outside there. So we had a good time. Good. That was great.
4: They'll be little aficionados eventually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they already are. Well, it's funny because as soon as I said that we're going to the Hollyhock House, it's a house designed by an architect Frank Lloyd Wright, immediately my son, who's 5 years old, he's like, "Oh, he's the architect that designed Fallingwater." Oh! And I mean, he knows that. <laughs> <laughs> he knows that because of a uh because of the Lego Architecture series that I oh, got sure him a, a while ago. Uh, so it has yeah, it has, you know, all of these architecturally significant the houses and and he loves that house. He loves how it's just uh, built over this that's awesome. Awesome. So that was pretty cool. I wasn't expecting that to come out of his mouth. You
4: puffed your chest up proudly. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing.
0: Proudly and slightly worried. I know. I'd rather him become like a...
4: <laughs> Doctor. Superhero.
0: or something. Yeah. Superhero, there you go. <laughs> How was your week, Donna?
4: Good. I went up last Friday to Ball State and did some critiques for my friend Janice Shimizu and uh, the 501 Studio, which is Ball State's comprehensive studio. It's sort of the last big, major, complex project you do before your thesis. And it was really good work. Really super impressed with the quality of the work. These students did a um, a theater and it was they had to do a material study and a wall envelope study as well. And I think they did a really good job of sort of taking some very theoretical ideas and turning them into an actual building. So I was very impressed. More impressed than I've been in a while in, in going up to, to review students. So one of the students though made the comment that working with Janice was like drinking from a hydrant because she just kept throwing so much stuff at them. So I loved that analogy. And then last night I went to a land use development committee for the local neighborhood association over this project that's been in such turmoil in the neighborhood. And it was both painful and hilarious to be at this meeting. The outtake from it, I don't want to go deeply into it, although I talk about it on Thread Central if anyone's interested. The outtake for me, though, that, that I want to tell people, and especially students, is you should try going to one of these like historic preservation meetings, land use committee meetings, something in the city that is where the private owners have to ask for permission to do certain built things. They are real exercises in democracy, and they are painful and illuminating, and it's really something you're going to have to deal with as an architect. So go try it out and get a taste of it now before you actually have someone paying you to deal with it, because it's a very odd dynamic of a committee of professionals reviewing something and people that really just want to do what they want to do with their own property. It's very bizarre, but it's a really important part of our profession. So I would encourage students just go find out when they are down at your city and go to one, see what you think. It it might play bigger in your future than you would want it to.
0: (laughs) That's a great suggestion. Young students, take note.
2: So we've decided to devote most of this episode, or the entirety of this episode, to the recent earthquake in Kathmandu and the various following aftershocks and the um, effect in Nepal overall we were able to talk with an architect who is now based in Kathmandu and originally from there, who was amazingly came forward on one of our forums to kind of discuss the architect's role in relief efforts and reconstruction and just response to this earthquake. A little bit of background on what's happened in case that hasn't found you some way. The earthquake itself happened this past Saturday. It was a the worst in 80 years, according to reports out of there, of 7.8 magnitude. And so far, the death toll has been counted at around 5,500 and um, is estimated to rise up to 10,000, while around 100,000 people have already fled from Kathmandu and are and to, um, and outside of Nepal. And that number is estimated to grow to 300,000 in the near future. So we spoke with Rajan from Kathmandu. He was able to find connection and talk with us just about what's going on in the, on the ground over there and trying to get a handle on how architects can both be helpful and provide specific services, but also just organize with everyone else who is trying to lend a helping hand. And I'm sure the news hit you guys pretty drastically over here too. is a pretty um, incredible and awful scenario that we've just been hearing more and more information coming out, and it does not seem to be immediately getting as much help as it definitely needs. But I have heard reports that the Kathmandu Airport is now functioning, so they've been able to create faster exodus from the country, and things are moving. However, there have also been reports of not as strong as needed government support in this scenario. So, talking to Rajan was a real, a real um, opportunity, and we were really glad that he took the time to do it.
0: All right, let's listen to that conversation now. So, um, Rajan, maybe you can just uh, tell us a little bit about what the situation's like over there right now. How have people been facing this disaster?
5: Basically, it happened on uh, Saturday. Uh, Saturday, it was around noon, and uh, because it was the uh, earthquake, nobody was prepared, and uh, like it was just uh, people were shocked, and uh, I mean, and there were like aftershocks, so uh, they were really scared that uh, earthquake of similar magnitude would hit them again. So, uh, basically, uh, we had to, um, we were like, uh, waiting for aftershocks, after aftershocks, and after aftershocks, for like, um, at least a, a week now. So, yeah. And, uh, we were, uh, like, uh, people were literally, uh, living outside 24 hours a day. They were sleeping outside without like proper shelter and all. So, um, yeah, they were pretty scared. Um, right now things are getting better, but, um, it's just in, uh, Kathmandu. So uh, people are evacuating Kathmandu right now. Uh, government is helping them, like managing transportation and everything. And uh, the death toll is around, like more than uh, 5,100 right now, and more than 10,000 are injured. It's like pretty tragic right now.
2: So where are people congregating when they're leaving their homes and trying to stay outside? Just for fear of aftershocks and future damages where, where are people congregating and then where are they being evacuated to?
5: They're, uh, they're pretty much like the past couple of days, uh, they're like going out in a, like an open space, like, uh, in an open public area, like parks and all. And, uh, the problem uh, in Kathmandu is, uh, you don't have uh, much like public spaces. So it is pretty much crowded and, uh, they're going on like even in streets they're sleeping on, uh, like streets on pavements uh, without proper shelter, and it was raining outside like a couple of days. So I pretty much like I was sleeping uh, inside my house, but we had to leave all the doors open so in case of uh, any emergency, we, we would just like evacuate like that. And uh, yeah, and my, my uh, like my neighbors, like most of them were uh, living outside in a like a public playground, just without any proper, like, tents. And uh, there was no bathrooms that they could use. I mean, I don't know how they managed it.
4: Rajan, can you tell us, for people who don't know much about the urban state of Kathmandu, what are most of the, the buildings and houses' construction quality? And are there buildings that were built to withstand earthquakes that people can go to to feel more safe?
5: Uh, no, no, definitely not. Uh, it's The houses in uh, Kathmandu is kind of like, I mean, they're not, over here, they're not like strict on the codes, the building codes, like they do have in, uh, states. So people like just ignore like the safety issues. So the damages that was done on the houses were pretty much the old houses, uh, made of like bricks and all. The concrete houses that's in Kathmandu is pretty much stable. They're just like minor cracks, but with just like minor fixes, it could be uh it was not that bad for the concrete houses, but for the ones with the bricks and the old houses. I mean there were there are houses like uh what like uh 80, 100 years old. So I mean they were pretty unstable. And uh in Kathmandu is uh, is like really overcrowded. So uh people I mean I heard from a friend that um there was a building in a place called uh Kapan like a seven story building just like went down and like there were uh, 50 people in it uh just they were i mean they were gone
2: uh we've been hearing also a lot of reports about certain historical monuments or his otherwise historically significant buildings being compromised or being completely destroyed through the course of the earthquake. And there's been discussions of explicit rebuilds or um, renovations of those structures. And I was wondering if, you know, as an architect and as a someone who's living there, is there any feeling of kind of... Difficulty about that decision to to have attention towards rebuilding those structures rather than other relief efforts. What do you think is the most important focus of relief efforts? What should that be at this point?
5: I mean, after I think it was the third day that I went to uh, the, the cultural site, and it was pretty much like destroyed the, all the temples. Most of the temples were destroyed in Kathmandu. I was pretty heartbroken. I mean, I went there like helped Whole day, I mean digging out people, and uh, it was like really tragic. But I think, I mean, the for right now, we should more focus on. I mean, people are doing that right now. They are more focusing on not like rebuilding the temples for right now. They're just focusing on the people who are injured and like who need shelter, who are homeless. Today, we even had meetings about like how to help uh, people, like most effective I mean, with like homeless people, just like rebuilding like tents and providing them with proper shelter, food, water and sanitation and clothing. We're I think the government is also uh for, for right now, they're not focusing on rebuilding cultural heritages. They're focusing on the people who are alive. And uh yeah, that, I, I think that's that's I mean that's pretty uh, uh viable thing to do right now.
0: What is the situation with food and water in Kathmandu?
5: Right now, I've been to places like, uh, uh, some camps. It's not that bad for right now, but the thing is, uh, there are some sort of like, like colder outbreaks. Um, they were pretty worried that thing that we had in Haiti, like might happen in Nepal as well. So, uh, it's not that bad in here in Kathmandu, but, uh, there is a place called Sindupalchok district. I mean, it's a district like 25 miles out of Kathmandu, where there is like what 1,300 more than 1,300 uh, people are dead. That's I mean, people over there. I mean, I've heard that people over there, they're they don't have clean water to drink and they don't have like they're running out of food and uh, and the I mean the land over there is not stable. They have like uh, they're having after every aftershock, they're having landslides. So uh, people, I mean, volunteers can't even, I mean, they're really scared to go there to help them out. And that's, that's what, I mean, I went to a meeting today uh, with uh, some of my friends and we were like really uh, worried that, I mean, the land over there is not stable and like how to, I mean, get over there to help them out and stuff like that. I mean, we're still figuring out a way to help them out without, I mean, risking our
4: own lives. Razan, what about, how are you speaking to us today? And what about electricity and, and internet access, those kinds of things? Yeah, how are you speaking to us, and how is that kind of infrastructure in the city?
5: Um, like, luckily, I mean, after after the, uh, I mean, uh, I wasn't affected by losing uh, power or internet. I mean, but, like, even in uh, a major city like uh, Kathmandu, um, uh, People were people didn't have internet, so I mean, they didn't have water for like a certain period of time. Right now they're having I mean, it is pretty much stable if the electricity is coming back on and they're having internet and they're connecting. But um, yeah, I mean we, we lost power for a while. But for my case, I mean I was pretty much connected and there was power like all the time. It wasn't a problem for me. But it's not like all the places have the same thing. I mean, I don't know, probably I mean, they had problems with power on other parts of the city.
2: And we've been extremely lucky because of that, or at least because you've been able to have access to power and internet because you've been able to... Be involved in um, a forum in our on connect about how architects can become involved in relief efforts um, after the earthquake. I was wondering what is the conversation amongst architects and amongst your peers over there about how architects can become involved in relief efforts and what they should do, and maybe perhaps also what they shouldn't be doing to avoid difficulties or conflicts and other in prior relief efforts that have gotten people in difficult situations.
5: Um, in like these kind of situations, I mean, me and my other uh, peers went to volunteer like a couple of times, uh, like in the cult- cultural heritage in uh, Bhaktapur where the temples were destroyed. The problem was that we faced was uh, we weren't that much experienced. Even though we went there to volunteer, we weren't like experienced enough to handle the situation over there, and there wasn't proper coordination between like people i mean there were people just wanted to volunteer but they didn't know what to do in these kind of situations so we were we kind of wasn't like prepared so i think i mean it would be better if somebody like with experience would like help the volunteers guide like what to do and what not to do on these kind of situations so um we like one of my friends also uh like had a talk with uh uh, Shigerivan Architects, they said that they were planning on building tents for medical personnel in the first phase. So we also um, like contacted other architecture firms like Zebra, uh, Moss Architects. I mean, they said that uh, they were planning on doing something, but I mean, we're still looking for guidance. You know what I mean? I mean, we haven't had this situation before, and uh, like there aren't like trained personnel in uh, Nepal to handle these kinds of situations. So there's kind of like management issues over here. So I think if we fix that, it'd be, it'd be much efficient.
0: Rajan, are there any organizations over there that, you know, for people that want to donate money to assist in the reconstruction in Nepal, are there any organizations that the Nepalese people especially appreciate donations to or have a higher level of respect. I mean
5: architecture wise or like uh, I mean what kind of organization like any kind? Or? Well
0: I guess I guess what I'm asking is are there certain charities that would be better to donate money to than others in in Nepal like Red Cross, for example, is that is that a, a charity that you would recommend?
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah yeah I would definitely recommend uh, Red Cross and uh like i wouldn't recommend that uh people just like raise uh raise funds for uh these kind of situations and just i mean they they should probably uh like fund a bigger firm i mean bigger organization that has, like a lot of experience so like red cross and other uh uh un and like these kind of organizations have a better understanding of uh what they should do on these kind of situations. So, yeah, I'd probably recommend that to uh, all the uh, donors.
2: Rajan, what do you think should be the architect's role in assisting rebuilding after the relief efforts have kind of, after the tide of relief efforts have kind of ebbed, that once the city and Nepal entirely becomes focused more on rebuilding. What do you think should architects focus most intently on and and what can they, obviously they will be heavily involved in rebuilding, but what perspective do you think they should have going into it and and what is strategically do you think the most important thing is to focus on at that point?
5: Uh, At that point, I think we should, I mean, we should learn that uh, we should follow like a basic, uh, like structural, we should like solve the basic structural issues. Uh, rather than uh, over here, what happens like outside of main uh, like cities, they just uh, they don't hire an architect. I mean, they don't help. I mean, they don't get help from architect or any other kind of uh, professionals. They just do it by themselves, like their forefathers did. I mean, they just stack them, stack up some bricks, and I mean, just they make the the houses you see in the villages are just community made. So uh, what I think is. I mean, there should be like, especially like, the government Nepal should um, they should help these local communities to uh, rebuild like using architects and structural engineers, so that uh, it be like more stable in these kind of conditions. And they should have proper like planning in these kind of situations.
4: So, Rajan, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your path? I know you were educated in the United States, and you've just returned to Kathmandu. A few months ago, can you tell us what kind of work you had been doing there, and how your your views may change based on this event? Uh,
5: yeah, I mean, I worked there like almost a year, and I came back over here, and uh, it's been almost like six months I've been working over here in a uh, like a private farm. What I think, I mean, I'm pretty much like I think that I've been kind of disconnected with the community for a while after I graduated, and so I would wanted to more be. Involved in uh, with people like, uh, I mean, to be more. That's why I'm trying to. I mean, I'm planning to quit my job and volunteer for a while over here. Yeah, that's that, that's that's what I'm thinking right now.
4: Oh, I'm I'm sorry that it's such a sudden need to make that decision, but obviously you're you're facing a community that needs people to help that have the kind of knowledge that you have right now. So. I hope you'll keep us updated on how this goes, and maybe we can talk to you again.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rajan, to uh, give us a little insight into what's going on over there. It's a really horrible situation. So please do keep us updated and let us know how the architecture community outside of Paul can help assist in the reconstruction efforts.
4: Okay. Yeah, sure. And be safe and good luck to all of you over there. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Rajan. Thank you. So, Talking to Rajan and and thinking about what I know about disaster relief, uh, someone who I've learned a lot from in this area is Wes Jans, who's a professor at Ball State University and um, has done a lot of traveling internationally and in the country, looking at disaster response and looking in particular at how people from the outside can frequently come in and think that they're helping, but they're really not. They're either making things worse or they're setting up situations where, for people who haven't read the thread on Archonnect about this, one of the most recent posts was... A woman saying that in her experience, and she is, I I believe, from Nepal or from India, saying that in her experience and understanding after, for example, the tsunami, the tsunami was terrible and people have terrible memories of it. But the thing that really sticks with them was how long it took for things to get better after, that people often will build what's supposed to be temporary shelters, but in fact, they end up living in them for years, waiting for things to get rebuilt. So I think Rajan had a little of that fear as well, that maybe the official response is not going to be quick enough or sufficient enough and that the infrastructure is not there for them to do things like rebuild well quickly.
0: Yeah. I mean, from what I'm reading and from what we heard from Rajan, they're in desperate need of temporary housing, temporary shelter, temporary medical service centers. And I imagine, I mean, that that can't come quick enough. I mean, we've seen the problems here locally in the U.S. with uh, Katrina, too. I mean, these problems can linger and lead to other problems. So it's... uh, Hopefully we'll all be able to learn from these previous disasters and try to do something better each time.
4: I will say that one of the things that my friend Wes told me about was uh, he teaches studios at Ball State that that deal frequently with these disaster scenarios. And um, he had two students, two women, who were really interested in being able to help in some meaningful way. And what they ended up doing, and I love this, it stuck with me for years now, they ended up getting trained in proper chainsaw usage. So how, if there's a disaster and you have to get someone out of, for example, after Katrina, if the, you know, wood-framed houses are, are collapsed on people and you have to get them out, there's a serious training that you can learn to figure out how to manipulate that, the, those fallen timbers. And, you know, what's going to happen when you slice with your chainsaw through it, where the tension is, where the compression is, on which side of that piece of wood. And th- the fact that you need skilled operatives who can do something that basic as operate a chainsaw. I think that architects, you know, we frequently think we can just wave a wand and fix everything. But the fact that these girls went and got chainsaw training so that they could actually go to somewhere and help, I just find that really affecting to me, that it's something that basic. I need water. I need to be cut out of this building, you know?
2: Yeah, I think that one of the many underestimated or like one of the issues that isn't paid as much attention to. And in other words, like things like that, that you might not have imagined as being the most helpful skills is that just like making those skills known to other people and then being part of a community that is capable of having a really solid organization system. Because as Rajan mentioned, the worst thing to do is just show up in an unorganized fashion and inevitably not put your skill set to appropriate use and or efficient use and also just get in the way of other people doing, trying to do the same. So there is definitely like a bottlenecking of good intentions where it's not always, unfortunately, it's never as simple as just being able to put your good work to work, but it involves so much more. And I I was really surprised and, and excited to see the response on Archonnect of people immediately going to someone like Shigeru Ban, who has experience in these large form relief efforts as an architect. And I think that efforts like that and knowing that you need to not only make yourself known, but also organize is really like going to be the most important thing. Right.
4: I think there is some valuable information in that thread about how to help and and how a longer term response can also be very helpful. So I hope people that are interested will read the thread on Archonnect after listening to Rajan.
0: I would like to compile some information on Archonnect as well as a kind of a resource for architects to refer to, because I know that there are a lot of architects out there that are wanting to know how they can help in any way. So, we would like to do a little research and find the best ways to help, and you know maybe some ways to not help. So watch out for that on the site
2: so I think that's the end of our episode today. Do you guys have any endorsements you want to share before we have to sign off? So, I just wanted to mention we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I think it's an
4: important topic that Killian Riano posted an article in the Architectural Review by Rainer De Graff Rainer De Graff in which he talks about architecture is now a tool of capital and he talks about the mission of architecture from basically the last century on and wonders what has happened to the social impetus for providing shelter for people it's been a very active discussion, you know, a lot of anger and a lot of wondering where an architect's responsibility lies in terms of their client and their community. So, it's a kind of a tough discussion, but I think it's a good one to have.
2: Thanks, Donna. Ken, did you have something to endorse?
3: Can I endorse the uh, audiobook I'm listening to?
2: Of course. Go ahead. What are you listening to?
3: It's not architecture related. I'm listening to Unknown Pleasures. Unknown Pleasures Inside Joy Division by Peter Hook, narrated by Peter Hook. Again, I'm finding these kinds of formats um, very informative. You know, there's this band that had no idea what the hell they were doing, and they somehow come out of the other side creating some of the most amazing synth and punk music that I can recall. So and i think there's lessons to take away from at least i do and that's why i listen to him because i don't just listen for the, the stories about joy division but i also listen to glean something about about another way of about process and about how seemingly we can you know enter something we have no clue about how to do something and then come out the other end and be these prolific and well respected talents so it's a very good
0: very good listen well i guess um I, I don't, it feels kind of uncomfortable endorsing a party with this type of uh, talk, but we hope that we can, uh, that we'll see some of our listeners at the party this weekend. It's actually going to be a lot of fun. We've already like far exceeded the number of RSVPs than we're even allowed to have in the Neutra VDL house. So we're assuming that not everyone that that has RSVP'd is actually going to come, but it's, there's going to be a lot of people. There's going to be great drinks, excellent coffee by uh, Yikai from Konyashenti, if you heard that episode on the podcast. It's going to be an amazing house. The weather is going to be super nice. So we're hoping to see some of the listeners there and we'll be there with microphones. So awesome! Oh. we might have some, uh, some drunk takes, some drunken footage last <laughs> for, the, for the show <laughs> next week that we can share blackmail material. Yeah. But yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And the, the publication looks really, really nice. And those are going to be available for sale as well. So that's it for me. Have any of you seen
3: Ex Machina yet?
0: No, no. I would love mm. to, though. Me too. Yeah, I want it's, to too. It's, it's on playing my list. at my favorite theater too.
3: Architecturally and stylistically, fantastic. <laughs> great story too. Oh,
4: you have seen it? I have. I have. Okay, I have great. It. Good. I'm glad you can recommend it. All
0: right. Well, I think we're done for the week. Thanks to everybody who has listened. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us via email at connectedrconnect.com, which we've actually been getting a lot of feedback lately, and we really have been appreciating that a lot. It's it's been great, both positive and negative. We take it all in completely and we really enjoy it. Fortunately, it's been mostly positive. (laughs) And you can also reach us on uh, Twitter, hashtag Archonnect And please consider rating us on iTunes. And thanks for listening.
4: Talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye Bye-bye.